0: This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live.
1: Welcome to the Saturday Breakfast Show on the 27th of January, 2024, where we will be talking about happiness. What is it? How can we make sure our pupils are happy? And just as importantly, how can we make sure that we as their teachers are happy? Good morning. It is, as I've said, Saturday the 27th of January. This has been one of the Januariest Januaries that I can remember. I don't know about you, um, but I've said this on my, on my social media this morning. I just cannot believe how much seems to have gone on this January and how january is still going um, <laughs> we've still got like five more days now i'm not gonna lie um i i do not like january i am not a fan um i know that lots of people do i know lots of people get into the whole new year new me thing and as i've said before on the show i am a fan of resolutions i am a fan of goals I am also a fan of starting afresh, weirdly. I never, ever thought I was. Um, I thought I was somebody who liked routine, who liked things to stay the same. Um, But I've realized over the last few years that actually sometimes things do need a bit of a refresh. Sometimes it is good to stop and, and take stock of your life and take stock of what's going on. And, and kind of start again and take that reboot. So, you know, I'm, I'm big on New Year's resolutions. Uh, I'm big on those changes. And in fact, the first show of the year that I did on the 6th of January of this year, which was in fact the last show I think that we did, was on New Year's resolutions. So if you haven't listened to that, um, please do go back and do so. But January as a month, I do not enjoy um january as a month i find the days are starting to get longer which i don't like um that does aggravate the the seasonality of my depression the there is less to look forward to i talk a lot on the show about festivals and and tradition, because culture is one of my interests, and I think no, I don't think I know that here in England we have among the fewest festivals to um, uh, that are celebrated of of any country, and so in January it feels like there's such a long time until anything interesting. You know, we've we've got Candlemas coming up. Um, Candlemas is next Thursday into Friday for anybody who celebrates it. I will be doing a Candlemas lesson with my Year 9 French class next week. In French, it's called Chantleur. And so I will be teaching my my Year 9s how to make pancakes um, in what is one of my favourite lessons of the academic year. But you kind of have to make it to February before you get to Candlemas. And, And you've got to make it through the 31 long days of January. And so I've been reflecting on that. Um, Because, I'm not going to lie to you, this past week has been quite difficult, really. I don't know why. I really don't know why. Nothing massively horrendous has happened. Nothing to do with health, or family, or friends, or my teaching. You know, there have been no big things. But I think this week, for me, has kind of been the the straw that broke the camel's back. I felt a bit like a slinky. I felt a bit like a slinky, where something would push me over the edge. And I thought, okay, that's fine. We've gone over the edge. Now, nothing else is going to get to us. But then something else happened, and it pushed me over the edge again. And then something else happened, and it pushed me over the edge again. And I kind of got to the point yesterday where I was like, right, okay... Slinky Darren must now be at the bottom of the stairs. Surely, surely we are done. And so that's one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about happiness today. Because I think quite often it's very easy for us to fall into patterns of negativity, to fall into patterns of negative thinking, and to not try and control that to not try and recenter ourselves. So part of my my show today, part of this show today and my research for this show today has been my attempt to recenter myself, to recenter myself in my own happiness and to help you all to recenter yourself into yours as well. Something I've noticed on social media last week um, was how people are starting to say, well, you know, the new year doesn't actually begin until February. I think lots of people are starting to see candleness as the actual beginning of New Year. And there's this idea of just surviving through January. And then in February, we can make a start. So that's kind of the attitude that we are adopting here on Saturday Morning Breakfast. You know, we were positive and upbeat for the New Year. We set our resolutions. We set our goals. We're working towards them, but life got a little bit in the way. So today we are taking the morning. We are recentering ourselves and we are starting again. We've had a couple of texts come in already this morning, which I am very grateful for. Tim, a long-term friend of the show here, has texted in to say, I can't believe it's still January. I'm glad it's not just me. I'm sorry that it is still January for you as well. (laughs) But I am glad that it's not just me feeling this way. Um, It's funny, isn't it? I didn't feel this way in January 2023. Last January, I thought just kind of zoomed by, but this year it's really taking its time. And of course, our founder and boss, Tom, has texted in to say, Good morning, good morning to you, Tom. I hope that you are having a a positive January. Um, I hope that everything is going well for you. If you are listening you would like to text in, there are a few different ways that you can do that. There are a few ways that you can get in touch with us here at Teachers Talk Radio. If you are listening live on the Podbean app, you have the option to text in to me directly. Um, I have the text coming up on my screen. I can reply to you immediately unless I'm in the middle of saying something fascinating. Um, which, you know, is quite likely, let's be honest. In which case, we're just going to do like school and I'm going to wait for me to finish what I'm saying and then I will reply to you. Um, if you are not listening live on Podbean, but you are listening live elsewhere, you can tweet me. I am at MrDLester, that's M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, or one word. I have Twitter open in another window and so I will respond to you live on air. If you are listening on the playback, welcome. I love our playback friends as much as I love our live and in-person friends. Uh, You are also free to text me on that same handle. As I always say, it's becoming a bit of a catchphrase here on Saturday Morning Breakfast. I do shows on things that I'm interested in. Um, For me, hosting the show not only gives me the opportunity to connect with some amazing teachers, but it also gives me the opportunity to do some fantastic CPD. I always say the best CPD decision I've ever made for myself was becoming a host here on TTR because I can focus on what I want to do and what I want to look at and what interests me as a teacher. And so because this topic interests me right now, this idea of happiness, happiness in our work, happiness with our students, it interests me right now, it will always interest me, I hope and so I will always be open to talking to you about it. So do engage with us here. Let me know what makes you happy, but please remember it is uh, 10 past nine on a Saturday morning, so we are gonna keep it family friendly. Let me know what makes you happy. Let me know how you take your happiness in hand. Let me know what you are doing to make yourself happy here on this rather bleak January weekend. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading.
2: Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Ofsted finds itself in the news again as inspections paused for two-week period to allow inspectors to undertake mental health awareness training, begin again on the 22nd of January. ITV News shared the results of a survey of almost 2,000 school leaders, which showed that 97% support the removal of single-word judgements. The survey, carried out by NAHT Union, followed the outcome of the inquest into the death of Ruth Perry. The union has urged Ofsted to implement a number of changes including a mechanism for school leaders to halt an inspection where an inspector's conduct falls below standards extending the notice period schools receive for inspection and asking them to revert to a process however temporarily of ungraded inspections similar to those conducted during the pandemic meanwhile the BBC reports that Ofsted has apologised fully for the first time for the role it played in Ruth Perry's death. The apology came at the same time as Ofsted responded to the coroner's prevention of future deaths notice. In the PFD response, new Ofsted chief, Sir Martin Oliver, said, such tragedies should never happen again, and that he apologized sincerely for the part inspection played in her death. Since the death of Mrs Perry, schools judged as inadequate on safeguarding alone are now re-inspected within three months. Ofsted also changed its confidentiality rules to allow heads to speak to colleagues, family, friends and health professionals about outcomes of inspections before the report is actually published. The Department for Education has committed to working with Ofsted to review things during a consultation in the spring, which it is calling the big listen. Education unions praised Ofsted's positive steps, but said they were only the beginning. The weather has been front and centre of the news this week, with schools across parts of Wales and Scotland being forced to close due to snow. Icy conditions and weather warnings made for tricky travel and forced school closures in areas badly affected. For those concerned that the post-pandemic impact of remote learning would mean the end of snow days, pictures on social media and local news proved that this was not always the case. But anyone worried that the icy blasts will last can be assured that the weather is set to return to normal over the next few days. Authors, including Sir Michael Morpogo and Mallory Blackman, have written an open letter urging the government to invest in early years reading. According to a book trust survey, only half of children between one and two from low income families are read to daily, with some families struggling to access books and being in need of support. The letter from authors is addressed to both Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and Labour leader Keir Starmer and says it is not right that children from poorer backgrounds are deprived of a life rich in reading. Sir Michael Mopogo is president of the Charity Book Trust and helped launch their new campaign Get Reading to support disadvantaged children in family reading. He spoke on BBC's Radio 4's Today programme, saying that the younger that children are introduced to the power of stories, the better chance there is of putting them on an extraordinary pathway of knowledge, understanding and empathy. He also said that books need to be free at the point of delivery, like the health service. A DFE spokesperson said, we are committed to raising literacy for children, but Sir Michael said that these efforts are clearly not enough. Finally, The Guardian features an article which looks at research in America that appears to show that children learn better on paper than on screens. The research follows headlines across the pond which focused on the nationwide collapse in reading scores among American youths, citing a four-point drop in the comprehension skills of 13-year-olds, falling below skill levels of 1971 for the worst performing students. Politicians appear to be assigning blame to the pandemic and the subsequent lockdowns, with remote learning being labelled as bad for students by the Biden administration. Others blame teachers who they say lobbied for lockdowns. However, the article itself focuses on a new study by neuroscientists at Columbia University's Teachers College, which appears to show there is a clear advantage to reading a text on paper rather than on a screen because it leads to what they describe as deeper reading. A sample of 59 children aged 10 to 12 were asked to complete a series of tasks, which led researchers to conclude that we should not yet throw away printed books and shouldn't rely on the digital revolution just yet. Further details can be read on The Guardian website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox.
1: Joe's news there has kind of encapsulated perfectly why I think this show is so important. Somehow, it's our fault that people read better on paper than on screens. Um, Somehow, it's our fault that there was a global pandemic and in order to keep people safe, we had to go into a lockdown. Somehow, it's our fault that uh, keeping schools going online, and you know again, let's be very clear because I've spoken about this in the past, I am a big proponent for online learning. There is a lot of research to show that it does work, that it is successful, and people have had very, very positive outcomes through it myself, one of them, um I have a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, and a postgraduate certificate from the open University here in the u k um where my reading entirely was delivered either online or um, or by distance at least. In the early days we were sent printed materials in the post. Um, and yet somehow the fact that literacy levels are falling, the fact that there was a pandemic, that is laid at the feet of teachers. And there is a lot that is laid at the feet of teachers. A very good morning to The person who has just texted in, I'm terribly sorry, I am a linguist, um, but Arabic is not a language that I read, so I'm not sure how to pronounce your name there, but a very good morning and hello to you. Um, There is a lot that is laid at the feet of teachers, uh, and there is a lot of negativity about us, about schools, um, about what we do in the press, everywhere, everywhere. Um, it reminds me of the the English idiom, no news is good news. And I think there are two different ways that we can read that. Uh, we can either read it, as we quite often do, as this idea that if you don't hear something about something, then that's a positive. You know, it means that nothing has gotten worse and so you don't need to be updated. But there is also... The the emphasis on the no, no news is good news. There is no such thing as good news. We don't ever get good news reported. And when we do, people kind of make fun of it. You know, it's those two minutes at the end of a, of a, a news broadcast where the presenters suddenly become very cheery um, and they tell us about a, a fox that adopted a puppy and they then went off and lived their best life. And it can be very, very easy to get dragged down by this kind of negative news cycle, by by everything being our fault. And I think what we have to do is learn how to block that out and learn how to separate what we do, the importance of what we do, from what we are told. Because, you know, there is that disconnect there. There is the, the automatic jump by people who have reasons to be anti-school, anti-teacher, anti-education. You know, people who maybe didn't like school, people who didn't get on with their own teachers and now take it out on the next generation of teachers, people who didn't like the lockdowns. And so jumping on, you know, won't somebody think of the children is the easiest way to express their dissatisfaction of that? Because news always has an agenda. News always has an agenda, which is something in England, you know, we don't teach very well. You don't kind of encounter that unless you do A-level English. And it can be easy to be brought down by the news if you don't keep biases uh, biases and agendas in mind. So that's why, that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about happiness but also picking up on on the literacy levels is another good reason to think about it because reading can make us happy books can make us happy fiction can make us happy it's entertaining and there is nothing wrong with being entertained it broadens your horizons it helps you to learn about new things about new people there are all sorts of good reasons why we should be promoting literacy rates um, whether that is on screen or on paper. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna show my hand and say that I actually do read better on paper than I do on screen. Um, I don't have an e-reader. I used to have an e-reader. I don't anymore. Um, I do have the Kindle app on one of my surfaces, um, on one of my devices, so that you know I can access some of the free ebooks, particularly of. Um, of copyright-free, of classic books, you know, so I've got them there, easy to access. But I personally do prefer the the tangibility of a real book. But I know lots of people that do prefer to read on screen. I know lots of people that like having the control of the glare, for example. One of the things we know that we are taught um, about children with dyslexia is that the contrast of black on white... Uh, that we often have with printed materials is uh, makes it difficult for them to see what is there on the page. Whereas if you have got a device, you can control what color that background is. One of the things I've loved about using OneNote in my classroom, other online notebook softwares are available, um, is the fact that my children can choose what color the background of their pages is. And, you know, some of them will just play with it a bit like when you introduce them to Word for the first time and they just play with all the fonts before they actually start any writing. But others also understand that if their page is cream rather than white, they can read it more easily. They understand that if they usually need a yellow overlay, then they can play with the color of the overlay on the um, device. It gives them control. It gives them accountability. It, It gives them a sense of independence over their own learning needs. And, and I think that's really important. I think that's really important to, to teach them and to have them discover for themselves. So I think, you know, a black and white or oh, reading on a screen doesn't work Is is not the way to go. It is like all things about education discussed by people who are not educationalists, not that simple, not that simple. So let's talk about happiness, shall we? Uh, I'm going to pop a few disclaimers here before we get started. First of all, as I discuss quite often on the show, I'm very open about this. Um, I do have a depression and anxiety diagnosis. I am medicated for it. And so I am very much aware that there are circumstances outside of our control that can affect our own happiness on a week to week day to day even hour to hour basis okay so don't misunderstand any of the things that i am about to tell you i i understand what the different factors are that can affect happiness i am against toxic positivity and in fact we did a whole show on this Um, last year in in 2023 we did a show on positivity on toxic positivity what the differences are why positivity is important but how it becomes toxic please do go back and listen to that one um, if you haven't listened to it already Um, I really enjoyed doing the research for that one I thought it was really interesting and so you know I don't believe in being positive for the sake of being positive but at the same time I don't believe in being negative for the sake of being negative So I'm just kind of laying my own biases out there right from the beginning um, so that you know what you are letting yourself in for over the next hour while we talk about this. Why is it important to be happy? That's the big question, I think. That is that's where we need to start. Because I think particularly in England, we still have a very puritanical view of happiness. We kind of see happiness as being frivolous, as being self-indulgent. We don't always understand the difference between happiness and hedonism, for example. There is still this idea ingrained into our society that um, there is virtue in being sad there is virtue in being tired there is virtue in working too hard and you know anything that that makes you happy anything that uh, tries to alleviate that sadness that that suffering is is self-indulgent and wrong and so i think living in a society that still has that very deeply ingrained puritanical view even if people don't even don't realize that that's how we feel it's even more important then to take a very conscious very deliberate view of your own happiness and the happiness of your students because it's kind of within our nature to to bristle at it and to work against it and kind of even as i'm saying these things i feel something inside me saying well actually yes it is quite self-indulgent to focus on your own happiness? You know, what rights do I have to be happy when there are so many billions of people suffering? You know, there is always that little voice that we like to think of as being conscience, but is actually just upbringing, is just society um, kind of bristling at the idea that we should be happy. So for me, that is one of the fundamental reasons why we need to talk about it because we don't and because quite often we are content to live at a state of neutrality or even negativity because somehow society says that that is more acceptable than living at a point of positivity It's why this idea of toxic positivity has been more widely discussed in media, I've noticed, than toxic negativity. But there are also um, research reasons as to why we should focus on our happiness. The research shows that happiness does matter, and that might seem very simplistic. You might be sitting there thinking, well, obviously, Darren, it's nice to be happy of course that matters but the fact is happiness does change your life happiness does have very um tangible outcomes that are very important and that's what we're going to explore today as you know i believe in research-based practice i believe in in evidence-based everything and so again one of the things that i love about being here on the show is being able to get to grips with the research and doing something with it in a positive way that will make a positive impact for for you as my listeners and for me as the host so it has been fascinating this week to kind of engage with the research to see what people have been doing and to look at exactly why it is so important to be happy so let's start with why it's important for our students to be happy. So I've drawn on work here from Laura King, from Sonja um, Lubomirsky, and I apologize, Sonia, if you ever hear this for the fact that I've just butchered your family name, from Ed Dina, from Martin Seligman, um, and from Wainhoven et al. So all sorts of studies have been done On the importance of happiness for students Uh, but those are the ones that I am drawing on for this little section and according to the reading that I've done of of those researchers works happy students are more resilient now again I did I've done a show on resilience recently and why it's important as a teacher to be resilient Um, so please do go and listen to that one now what was interesting is that the research that i read kind of coupled resilience with bounce back ability which as i discussed in my show on resilience i don't think of the same thing um, but they are equated to the same thing in the research but happy students are more resilient they are more cooperative interestingly given what we've just talked about what i've just talked about about societal views on happiness they are less self-centered which feeds into that idea of cooperation. They are more willing to be helpful. They are more willing to be team players. They are more forgiving of mistakes. They are more tolerant of frustration. They have better self-control. They are better performers generally than those students who are less happy. And they are healthier and they live longer. Happiness relates to lower blood pressure more robust immune systems and a higher pain threshold. So there are actually physical benefits to looking for happiness. There are classroom benefits to looking for happiness. You know, who wouldn't want a classroom full of students who are more cooperative, who are less self-centered, who are um, better able to tolerate Tolerate their frustrations, who are better at their self-control. So there are in fact a whole host of positives to happiness that go beyond being happy, that go beyond this idea of self-centered narcissism that comes from chasing happiness. Now interestingly, a lot of the research that I read conflates happiness and optimism, and that conflation is often what leads to the um, the fight between, oh, happiness is a state of mind, and happiness is not something that you can control. So I was reading something um, about how Um, happiness as optimism is an inoculation against depression. Now, again, as somebody who has this kind of chemical imbalance and who now understands that about his own body, I look at that and I go, yeah, no. That's literally not how depression works. But what I think, you know, because I'm, I'm... choosing to have a generous reading of what I read. What I think they mean is that it inoculates against situational depression. So let's take a second to unpick the two different types of depression. There is physical, which is something within your body doesn't work in the same way as something within somebody else's body. I'm not a biologist. I'm not a doctor, so I'm not going to attempt to explain it. I've done lots of reading, but I'm not going to attempt to explain it. Um, but it's it's essentially to do with how your body absorbs chemicals. It's to do with your serotonin levels. You know, there are all sorts of things that that go on. That is very physical. There are medications that you can take to help with it, but they help. They don't cure. right, so it's it's very much a physical thing. Situational depression is that very intense sadness, that very intense depression that we all suffer from when something goes badly in our lives. And it's kind of like there is this one-off event and it is crushing, it is devastating, but you will work through it And once you have come to terms with that situation, the depression um, subsides. Now, of course, situational depression can have physical effects. It can have a long lasting physical impact, but it's not the same as what I've termed physical depression in that it is something that your body will eventually respond to and, and overcome. So I think what the authors are trying to get at, you know, again with a generous reading, is that optimism can be a a balm for situational depression. So if you are generally a happier person, you are generally more able, more equipped to deal with negative things that life throws at you, and so your situational depression won't be as bad. As somebody maybe who has a um, a more negative outlook on life, optimistic students, interestingly, who have been followed over time, and I couldn't figure out how the author of this study defined optimism, whether the students had to self define or whether there were criteria that they had to meet, but either way. This study showed that optimistic students had higher incomes at age 35 than their pessimistic counterparts. Optimistic, happy students also created stronger social bonds and senses of belonging, which is a very meaningful contributor to happiness. So, so this study found that it was almost a... a, a repeating cycle you know happier people optimistic people were more likely to do things that made them happy and optimistic therefore they were happier and more optimistic and so it became a bit self-perpetuating now again because that particular study I found quite difficult to find the background of um, I am taking a few things there with a pinch of salt but I think you have to do that with all research. You know, you you recognize your own bias. You know, I recognize the fact that um, I have a physical depression. And so anything that tells me that optimism is an inoculation for depression automatically gets my back up. Um, and so I am going to start reading it with a slightly more negative viewpoint because I'm going... I don't believe that I will be cured just by being a bit more optimistic. But at the same time, again, we we take what we can from these things. We draw what we can out of them. I then went on to read studies by Masters, Barden and Ford from 1979 and by Eisen and Young from 1991. So quite old studies. But they focused on creating um, pleasant experiences. And these studies found that children who were asked to spend 30 seconds remembering something happy did better on a learning task that they were given just after remembering a happy experience versus those who weren't. So again, giving children a bit of a brain break, and I've kind of changed my mind on brain breaks recently, maybe that will be a a future show. But giving children a bit of a brain break, spending 30 seconds focusing on something that makes them happy, asking them to relive a happy memory, makes it easier to um, retain the information and to perform on the learning task than when that didn't happen, than for students who were not asked to, to remember a happy time. Now of course that does start to open cans of worms among specific students. You know, if you are going through a bout of depression, either physical or situational, it can be almost impossible to remember a happy time. If you are teaching in a boarding context, for example, and One of your pupils remembers a happy time with their family, maybe that will increase homesickness, which might make them feel a bit worse at the end of it. So, you know, there are there are difficulties always in asking students to remember happy times. But then I think actually as teachers, if we create a happy, safe, positive learning environment, maybe that does the same thing because maybe the happy thing that they can remember was 30 seconds ago when they won the Kahoot, or two minutes ago when they got a house point for answering a question, or at the beginning of the lesson because they are the pupil that perpetually doesn't hand in homework, but they remember to bring it this week. So we can help to create these happy memories in the classroom, which in turn can be remembered if you choose to try this this experiment. Can be remembered before they do their learning tasks. In a um, in a study among medical students, internal medical students who were given sweets, and you know these are these are university aged people at this point. They are training to be doctors. If they were given sweets or they watched a funny video before going to meet a patient. They were better at diagnosing hard to diagnose cases of liver disease. So again, even that quick burst of happiness, that that funny YouTube video, that funny TikTok, the not a reward, is it? Because they haven't done anything, but that boost of having something sweet to eat made them better at their job. And then cheerful, University students, again, who were followed across their career, ended up earning on average 25,000 US dollars more per year than their more dour counterparts. Now, at university last year, so um, in case you are new to the show, I'm currently studying for my doctorate in education. At university last year we learnt in our management, our educational management modules, about this idea of people are more likely to hire people who are like themselves. Um, and that's kind of a, a big issue in educational management because it's why we have a lot of the same types of people constantly being hired, constantly being promoted. But what's interesting about that, and and I've literally just connected the dots now, is that if you have a bigger social network because you are cheerful, then you are more likely to be seen as fitting in. You are more likely to be seen as being like people who are hiring managers, who are... Um, HR representatives who are head teachers and therefore you are more likely to get those promotions, those higher paying jobs. And if those people in positions of power are happy, optimistic, upbeat people and they see that in you, then they see that you are like them, they are more likely to hire you. So again, it becomes this this self-perpetuating cycle. There is an extent, I'm sorry for that pause, I was just figuring out how to phrase my next point. There is an extent to which we can choose to be happy. Now again, I am not talking here about toxic positivity. I am not talking about always being happy no matter what is going on in your life. But I am talking about what you choose to show other people. I don't know whether anybody listened to um, to Kat on the late show the other day, on Tuesday, uh, but she was in, uh, interviewing Sam Crone about his book. It's an amazing show, please do go back and listen to that one if you haven't. Um, I find it super inspiring. Kat's such a good presenter. Um, but Sam talked about this, this study that he had read, where bad faith actors were put into a work group and then good faith actors were put into a work group. Um, He said that the study used the interesting terminology, bad apples and then good apples. And the, the study that he cited showed that working groups in which the bad apples were placed ended up performing less, even though they had had very conscientious, very positive, very upbeat workers before. Whereas the working groups that had the good apples put in them ended up being more productive. And so I think sometimes, not sometimes, all the time, how we are, how we present ourselves at school, how we present ourselves at work has an impact on everybody else around us. And it does only take that one bad apple, that one bad faith actor to bring an entire team down. Now, we are in a an era of hyper-individuality. I I didn't coin that term. I I read it a few years ago and I really liked it. It was one of the things that I magpied into my own vocabulary. But there is this idea that we should be super individual. And going around on social media, there is always this idea that, that we have to be our authentic selves at all points in time. And in some ways, that is an example of toxic positivity. Because in some ways, It's not actually necessary for you to be your full, true, authentic self, because in some ways, in some circumstances, in some instances, you just kind of need to get on with it. It's kind of like if you're in the supermarket and you've put everything up on the conveyor belt and the person at the checkout is is putting it through the till and, you know, you're making chit chat and the person at the checkout says, oh, you know, how are you doing? Um, How's your weekend going? let's be honest, they don't really care. They are just making conversation. And it's kind of the same in school. You know, you've got your group of actual friends that you work with, and then you've got your group of acquaintances, your group of colleagues, the ones that you make happy chit chat with over coffee, you know, while you're waiting at the photocopier, whatever it might be. But who you kind of don't really think about on a day-to-day basis. the day-to-day basis—the kind of out of sight, out of mind people—and and you know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm sure that I am an out of sight, out of mind person for most of the people who work at my school, um, because that's just how life is. But and I think you know, for for those people, if I'm just standing at the photocopier making chit chat they don't actually want to know my whole life story. Because as soon as we walk away from the photocopier, they will forget that I exist. But if I'm having a bad day, and I kind of just blurt that out at these people, then that's gonna have a negative impact on them. Because, you know, people are empathetic, people are sympathetic, people carry other people's baggage. And so I think, you know, sometimes at school, yes with your actual friends you know your colleagues who you consider friends you can be your authentic self you know if you're having a bad day you can tell them and you know they will take that on board and you can go out for a drink after work or whatever and you know because you are actual friends but for the most part in school as an organization i do think that we are better off keeping a a neutrality or a neutral positivity because for the most part it doesn't actually matter how we're feeling. Because most of the people who ask us, oh, how's your day going, they don't really care and so I think if you are then choosing there to put on a happy facade, if you are choosing to to perform happiness, then that's going to make their day a little bit better. But if you're choosing to perform negativity, that's going to make their day a little bit worse. And I think, you know, we should always aim to make people's days a little bit happier if we are able to. What I find quite interesting amongst all this research that I read is that people are really bad at predicting what will make them happy. And, you know, we hear that quite a lot in all of the research on happiness. Um, It talks about this, but people generally overestimate the positive impact of having more money. Now, again, let me be very clear here. If you are a person living in abject poverty, then yes, having more money is absolutely going to make you happier because it's going to make your life easier. If you are worried about how you're going to pay the mortgage, about how you're going to feed your kids, about how you are going to get to work next week because your car is just broken down and you can't afford to have it fixed, then absolutely having more money is going to make you happier because it is going to make your life that little bit easier. But if you are comfortable, if you can manage financial difficulties without too much heartache, if you can afford a treat every so often, then having more money actually doesn't have a huge impact. And we're going to come back to this in a second. Um, People tend to overestimate the impact of having more possessions. And interestingly the impact of having more good things happening to us. So a lot of the studies are showing that you can kind of reach a point of saturation with good things happening and you get to the point where more good things happening will not necessarily increase your own personal happiness. We also overestimate the negative impact of what happens when bad things happen to us. So. There is this idea at the extreme end of this, there is this concept of catastrophizing, which is where your brain will tell you that any slight mistake that you make will be the end of the world. It will be the end of your career and you will end up homeless and it's going to be the worst thing ever. Now that is quite an extreme end of the scale. But it is true that most people think that the bad things that happen to them Are worse than they actually are, or will have a bigger impact on their lives than they actually will. And so we have a lot of this if only thinking. You know, if only I can have a bigger house. If only I could get that gym perfect body. If only I could quit my job and just be on perpetual holiday. If only I had more friends. And we tend to set these arbitrary goals for ourselves that will make us happy. You know, if I can get married and buy a house by the age of 40, I will be happy. I'm 40 in 18 months. So that is not happening. Um, but actually what happens is we achieve those things. They don't make us happy in inverted commas you know they don't make our lives suddenly perfect and so we raise the bar so now it's not enough that i'm married and i've got the big house now i want that gym toned body so i start going to the gym and i get it and i get my abs and i get my um biceps see i can't even name the muscles that's how far away i am from having a gym perfect body we achieved that and it still hasn't made us happy. It hasn't put us into a perpetual state of bliss. So then we raise the bar again. Oh, now I need to quit my job and become a digital nomad and live perpetually on holiday. And because we keep raising that bar, we forget that the things we've just achieved are the things that we have always been looking out for, the things that we have been working towards. I remember when I published my first book, how happy I was, how excited I was, how nervous I was, how stressed I was. It was amazing because it was something I had been working for so long for. I had another book come out this week. Um, And, you know, it's, it's exciting. I got the news and I was just like, yeah, okay, good, that's happening. And I had to kind of take a step back and go, hold on, hold on, hold on. You are publishing a book. This has been your dream ever since you were a little boy. And now, yeah, it's fairly normalized in your life. You know, I'm looking at my vanity shelf and there are a fair few things on it at this point. I've been, you know, very lucky over the past couple of years. And I think because it's become normalized, I have lost sight of how exciting it is to have a book published. And I think back to, you know, seven year old me who really wanted this, whose dream it was to have a book. And he would be so disappointed that I wasn't getting so excited every time I had a new one come out. And so I think. Keeping in mind what your dreams are, keeping in mind what your dreams have always been and when you achieve them, not normalizing them. But keeping those small victories, keeping those small happinesses is really, really important for us. Absolutely raise the bar. You know, absolutely achieve your goal and then move on to the next one. But don't forget about why that first goal was important to you. And if you keep achieving it, because I'm, this is not to toot my own horn, but this is just to... um to um, legitimize any other writers who might be listening, you know, publishing a book is a big deal. It's a lot of work and it takes a lot to get there. Continue celebrating it, raise the bar, get more books published, get a podcast, get a YouTube channel, you know, whatever your next goal is, but continue to celebrate publishing the books because just because you've achieved something doesn't mean that achieving it again in future is worthless. If anything, it makes it better because it shows that your first publication, it shows that your first ab, it shows that your first um, holiday to a, a Greek island wasn't a fluke. It kind of legitimizes the fact that you can do it. There was a study of 22 people who won the lottery Um, in the US and I think for a lot of us we assume that a lottery win will bring us happiness this study showed that those 22 people over a period of time they kind of reverted to their baseline of happiness so they were incredibly happy for the first few years of their lottery win but eventually kind of like I've just been talking about it became normalized It became their default state. It was like, yes, I've got all this money. And so they had a new normal. And of course, normal is neutral. Normal is how we feel all the time. It's what we are used to. It's not remarkable. Whereas one of the reasons that happiness tends to stand out is because it is remarkable. It, It breaks away from that neutrality. So there is this idea that the importance of money, rather than the actual ownership of money, influences your happiness. Now again, this is in cases of people who are financially comfortable to start off with. So there was a study done amongst teenagers of different classes, and they found that teenagers from working-class families would self-describe as happier than teenagers from more affluent families. Materialism, according to the conclusion of this study, seemed to be counterproductive because at every level of income there were the people who had uh, the people who valued money more than they valued other goals were less satisfied with their income and so less satisfied with their lives as a whole. Now, let's be very careful with this one, because this is the argument that is used to keep teacher pay quite low. You know, this these are the people who will turn around and say, oh, well, teaching is a vocation. Teaching is a calling. You you get the reward of working with young people, of seeing them grow, of helping them to achieve their dreams. And there's this idea that because we have these other rewards, we shouldn't also be financially compensated. But why can't you have both? Why can't we be paid for our time, paid for our skills, paid for our expertise, and have the vocational benefits as well? I will tell you why. It's because as a society we have this aversion to people having it all. We have this puritanical version, uh, puritanical vision of it being better for there to be at least some negativity in life than having a constant state of positivity. Now money of course does make a difference. In the U.S., studies have shown that families making 100,000 U.S. dollars are happier than those who are struggling, of course. But families who make more than 100,000 U.S. dollars are not much happier. So again, we've kind of got that ceiling where 100,000 is the, the salary that a U.S. family requires in order to live a comfortable, happy level. But what was interesting about this study was the relative rankings. People care about how they compare to other people. There's a a YouTuber that I used to watch whose mantra was comparison is the thief of joy because you can consider yourself lucky. You can consider yourself happy until you compare what you have to what somebody else has. And if you then believe that you compare unfavorably, that can start to fester. Not so long ago, I went for a promotion at my school. Um, I went for the Head of Languages position that became available um, at our prep school, and I didn't get it. Uh, Whereas my friend my colleague, who also worked at the school, did. And there was a choice for me at that point. I could either have been resentful of the fact that I didn't get that job and have been resentful of my friend and have that poison the friendship and, and poison my, my work at the school. Or I could have been happy for my friend. I could have said, yes, do you know what? You absolutely deserve to get that job. And you getting that job doesn't take away from who I am as a teacher. It doesn't take away from whether or not I was right for it. It just meant that you were more right for it. And as it turns out, she was. She's doing an amazing job. But I had that choice to make. And I chose to be happy for her. And I I chose to be supportive. I chose to be on her side because what good would making the other choice have done? It would have made me miserable. It would have soured a lovely friendship. It would have made working very uncomfortable. There was nothing to be gained. I had no control over whether or not I got that job. You know, I I wasn't making the hiring decision. But I had the choice of how I was going to respond to it. And I think I made the right choice because we have a really positive working relationship. We have a lovely little team um, on that prep school site. We have an excellent department and it's, it's working really well. And, you know, I can make comparisons between practice and between experience and all of those sorts of things but ultimately they don't mean anything all that matters is that we are getting the job done so comparison is the thief of joy don't compare yourself to other people don't compare yourself to people who you think are where you should be because there are reasons that they're not that you're not there, that may or may not be in your control. There are reasons that they are there that may or may not be in their control. And ultimately, the comparison isn't going to do anything. The comparison isn't going to get you the job. The comparison isn't going to get you the salary. Ultimately, it's just going to make you more miserable. It's going to make you bitter. It's going to make you resentful. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that at all. There is a there's a, a a cycle, a thing, a theory called the hedonistic treadmill, which is where you start with the desire, I really want thing X. You then satisfy that desire, you get it. You then have happiness. I got that thing that I wanted. That happiness fades, and then you come back round to desire. I really want this new thing, and you have this cycle. Of, of wanting, of getting, of happiness, of fading, of wanting, and it all comes back round. So this means that real sustained happiness doesn't come from getting a promotion, making more money, buying the bigger house, winning the lottery, improving your looks, changing your location, changing your job, anything like that, because that will always fade. What money does do, what that promotion does do, is that it satisfies your basic material needs. Okay, If we think back to Maslow's hierarchy, it satisfies that base need so you can then work on what comes on top to make you happy. It is a way of winning security. We want to feel secure. That's another base need. And it buys you time. Because if you can afford uh, to hire a cleaner to come and clean your house, that gives you more time to work on writing your next book, to work on marking your year 13 mock exams, to work on creating a lovely PowerPoint that you put up on, um, on the internet for sale, which in turn can get you more money. So time is a very important commodity. And people who have money can buy more time. You know, there's, there's this idea that um, we all have the same 24 hours, but my 24 hours are very different to the 24 hours of somebody who has got children to look after. My 24 hours where I have a 20 minute walk to school is very different from the 24 hours of somebody who has got an hour commute and that's assuming positive traffic. So we all have 24 hours, but how we partition those 24 hours is different. And again, we can compare. And somebody could look at my short commute and go, well, you know, we only have to walk 20 minutes to school therefore he can get more done in his day which is true or you can go okay i've got an hour commute so during this time i am going to listen to um the majority of the saturday breakfast show with darren lester and learn something on my hour commute it's all about framing isn't it it's all about how we interpret how we see our own situations there are, interestingly, three determining factors, which kind of just nullify what I've said. So there are three determining factors to a person's happiness. 50% of your happiness is genetically determined. 50% of your ability to be happy comes from your genes. That's your temperament, your... um how prone you are to depression, uh, your set points. All right, so half of your ability to be happy is determined by your parents, your grandparents, you know, going back, back, back. 10% of your happiness is determined by your circumstance. And I think that's really interesting, because again, we've talked already about circumstantial depression and this idea that your circumstance can really hit you. But what is working there is the interplay between your circumstance and your genetics. So if you are genetically more predisposed to negativity rather than positivity, and then something bad happens to you, you are going to fall into that negative spiral. 40% of your happiness, so that's what's left over, 40% of your happiness can be created through intentional activity. Now 40% might not seem like a lot, but actually it's the biggest chunk that you can control. You don't control your genes, you don't control negative things happening to you. But actually four sixths, two thirds of your ability to be happy Hold on, that's not right, is it? No, that's not right at all. Four-tenths. Four-tenths of your ability to be happy. See, I'm a linguist, not a mathematician. Four-tenths of your ability to be happy. Two-fifths is created by you, by what you are doing, by what you are choosing to do, by how you are choosing to spend your time. Now, I referenced... Just now, this set point, which is a um, an actual thing. so it, there's this research done by Brickman Coates and Janoff Bullman. Uh, this was in nineteen seventy eight so again it's quite old research, but it it was in uh, it was into um, quadriplegia and how people with quadriplegia reacted to their circumstances. And what this research found was that one year after becoming quadriplegic, the participant's happiness level returned to where it was before their drastic change in circumstance. Which suggested that the happiness set point is genetically influenced, but it isn't fixed. You can kind of change your happiness set point. You can kind of change how happy you are about things. And a lot of that is going to be influenced by what is called the big five, the fundamentals of well being. So, the five things that are considered to be the most important for well being are your relationships, your social connectedness, your positive emotion your engagement that is engagement with the world around you not that you're going to get married your meaning and purpose and your accomplishment so if you can hit those five areas you then have positive well-being which brings happiness so let's have a think about what each of those mean under relationships strong bonds strong social bonds is the most meaningful um the most meaningful factor when it comes to happiness the research shows that people who have one or more close friendships are happier than those who don't there is this idea that we as humans are social creatures we have this need to belong and so creating long-term friendships And having people that you can confide in creates this sense of belonging, therefore makes you happier. What I found really interesting about this research is that at no point did it mention romantic relationships. So it isn't that you need to be married. It isn't that you need to be in a couple or whatever in order to have this kind of positivity, these positive benefits of relationships. It's that you need to have friendships. You need to just have those positive relationships with other people. And this applies to whether you are introverted or extroverted. So even if you are sitting there thinking, oh, what well, I'm an introvert. I don't need other people. That's actually not what introversion means remember. Introversion means that you recharge by being on your own but it is still good for you to have those positive um, those positive relationships with people. Then is positive emotion. So f- feeling joy, feeling pleasure, Feeling enthusiasm, feeling intimacy, feeling caring for others, feeling gratitude, feeling appreciation, and feeling optimism. All of those create happiness. But what is really interesting about this, that I thought was really interesting about this, particularly in regards to relationships with other people, is what is called the paradox of happiness. If you want to be a happy person, don't focus on your own happiness, but focus on the happiness of other people. If you try and make other people happy, you are more likely to be happy yourself. Now, of course, and again, I'm going to bring my disclaimers back in here, because we know that this isn't a cure for a physical depression. You know, we've all heard the stories of the comedians who kind of make their career out of trying to make other people happy, but still go on ultimately to commit suicide. But even though these things are not a cure, they are a balm. All right. So you can increase your own base level of happiness by focusing on the happiness of other people. Then there's gratitude. Now, gratitude has become a bit of a buzzword on social media recently. I've noticed it's probably just the social media that I watch, but a lot of things that I see are about gratitude and this idea that being grateful for what you have makes you happier because you are not then constantly focused on what you don't have. Gratitude makes you feel more satisfied. Grateful people, interestingly, are more physically healthy and they exercise more, which I I don't understand, but that's all right, I didn't conduct the survey. Um, Gratitude brings freedom from envy. So again, comparison is the thief of joy, but being grateful for what you have and being focused on what you have and not what somebody else has that you want, that will make you happier. And it's not about being ignorant to the fact that you want something. And, and, you know, it's not about saying that all want is bad. Um, Although, of course, if I have any listeners who are Buddhists, then, you know, you are going to disagree with me there and, and that's okay. But there is this idea that you can pursue what you want without being negatively impacted by the fact that somebody else has it. You know you to to use my example about you know my friend getting a promotion and I didn't if I still wanted to be a head of department, I could still apply for jobs. The fact that she got that job doesn't stop me from applying for others. let's move on because i'm aware that we're running out of time as always i was a bit worried that um that i wouldn't have enough to fill the show today but uh turns out that i am having to um to rush through let's talk about engagement for a second engagement is the joyful feeling that we experience when we are deeply involved in an activity that is challenging and well suited to our skills or when we are trying to reach a meaningful goal Now, this is where I am going to say three little letters. C.P.D. For me, this is really important. Um, As I've said, I am currently studying for my doctorate in education, and I have found myself much happier in my work over the past year since I started my doctoral journey um, than I was before, and I think that's because of engagement. I think it's because I am deeply involved in my research I am deeply involved in my thinking about teaching. Um, it is a challenge, but it's also given me the ability to prove to myself that I can do it. And I've also got this meaningful goal, you know, that eventually I will be Dr. Lester. I don't quite know what that's going to do to my Twitter handle. Um, I might have to try and change it so that I become Dr. D. Lester instead of Mr. D. Lester. Um, But when we have these goals that we are working towards, when we are engaged with them, when we have that flow that comes of working for something that brings our own happiness because it gives a sense of purpose and it gives a sense of meaning. Now, of course, this engagement, these goals, these things that we're working for, I think that CPD is a good way to get them, but they don't have to be from CPD. They can be from anything, any goal that you have. You know, a, an exercise goal, a reading goal, a keeping your plants alive goal, whatever it might be. Having something to work for, having something to keep your attention, to keep you engaged is going to make you happier. And let's bring that back into the classroom for a second. Designing a curriculum that keeps our students engaged, designing lessons that keep our children engaged is going to make them happier. We hear about engagement all the time. You know, are our children engaged in the lesson? Are our children focused? And it's quite easy to dismiss engagement with, oh, but children don't like being in school anyway. You know, you're not supposed to like being at school. But actually, if you are very deliberate about what you are doing in the classroom and you design things with the idea of keeping them engaged, with the idea of keeping the children challenged, well suited to their skills giving them a very concrete goal to work towards you are creating the circumstances to make them happier in school which is what we want we want to be happy teachers we want our pupils to be happy purpose and meaning creates happiness there is research to suggest that spiritual people are relatively happier uh, and that comes from the social support within their spiritual or religious um, community opportunities for socializing for community service for making friends but also i suppose because spirituality often comes with a purpose most of the world's major religions state a purpose for life something you should be doing with your life so the lesson that i want you to take away if you are not a spiritual person isn't that i'm advocating that you should go out and become religious but that having purpose and having meaning is important for happiness then there's accomplishment to be truly happy you have to figure out your strength your virtue and use them for a purpose that is bigger than your own personal goals Use your personal goals to reach something bigger. Now for many of us, that will be our classes. You know, I want to use my talents as a linguist. I want to use my talents as a geographer. I want to use my talents as an artist to help my students get the GCSE grades, the A-level grades that they need to get into university to follow their dreams. Sometimes, though, that can be really difficult because if you have a class that is not engaged, if you have a class that you're not clicking with, if you have a really bad lesson that can have that negative impact on your happiness because you are not meeting that accomplishment. So as well as trying to find these things in the classroom, try and find them outside of the classroom as well. And this is something I think that is worth reminding our pupils of. That happiness comes from accomplishment. That yes, you might not want to sit down and do your spellings tonight. But when you get 10 out of 10 on your spelling test on Monday, you are going to feel really happy because you achieved that, because you accomplished that. Quite often it feels like our education system sets our pupils up to fail. Our tests quite often look, or focus on what our students don't know so that we can try and plug those gaps instead of celebrating what they do know. We very quickly write off when they have achieved a learning objective and we beat ourselves up over when they haven't. When in fact, we should celebrate the achieving of a learning objective. We should celebrate that accomplishment. We should celebrate the fact that that they have progressed. Seligman gave a list of virtues or signature strengths which can count towards happiness. They were wisdom and knowledge, courage, love and humanity, justice temperaments and transcendence, the idea of being bigger than yourself. Aligned to that, Howard Thurman said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that because what the world needs is people who have come alive. So Howard Thurman was saying, chase your happiness encourage our pupils encourage your pupils to chase what makes them happy because it doesn't matter what you teach there will be things within your subject that your pupils can connect with this is particularly true if you teach um, at GCSE in A level because to whatever extent they will have chosen your subject certainly at A level certainly if you are teaching in the university a bit less so at GCSE, i suppose especially if you are an english maths or science teacher but there will be something in your subject that they can connect with and that can be really hard because of course we've got exam curricula to teach and that's kind of the a, a flaw in our system here in england but find those things that your students connect with in your subject and really focus on those because that will increase your pupils happiness which as we have explored will increase their ability to learn if you want to be happy you have to engage in activities that make you happy and and that is kind of what the last 90 minutes kind of boil down to and I'm not advocating hedonism right now although if you are choosing to adopt that as your life choice that's entirely up to you you know I am not here as your life coach I am just here to share things that I've read but I think it's very easy to assume that happiness should be a neutral state that we should be happy just because we exist that we should be happy just because we're here but that's not how it works that's not how Our brains are wired. You actually do have to pursue it. You do have to try and find it. And so do. But that does take energy and discipline. You know, that does take being able to get up off the sofa and going out and pursuing your passion. Unless your passion is watching Netflix, like mine is. In that case, you're absolutely fine on the sofa. It's about being mindful about where you are right now what your situation is right now what can you do physically right now to increase your happiness is it lighting a candle are you sitting listening to me at your breakfast table with your slice of toast and you think do you know what a nettle tea would make me very happy right now in which case go and make your nettle tea because that's not hurting anybody You could master a new technology do you love the idea of using a visualizer in your classroom but you don't know the first way to start go and find a teacher who knows how to do it and learn how to do it forget about your results forget about the end goal and focus on the process focus on getting there because. Having a book published is wonderful, but it's one moment in the day. It's the moment that you see it on Amazon. It's the moment that I just heard the doorbell, so I think that that's my copy of my new book that has just come through. So it's that moment when the postman hands it over to you. But that moment was preceded by months, years of work. And that's kind of where life is lived. That's the reality of the situation. So don't focus on that one moment, as, as lovely as it will be, but focus on the process and how you can get the most out of that process as possible. If you're interested in the idea of gratitude, start a gratitude diary. You know, they are all over social media, but focus on what you are grateful for. And it can be small things. You know, I am grateful for the curry that I had for my dinner. I am grateful for Johnny handing in his homework because it's the first one that he's handed in since we started in September. I am grateful for my department meeting being cancelled. Because actually, if you write it down, a bit like we say to our students, if you write it down, you are going to internalise it better. And you are going to keep yourself focused on it. Give positive reviews. If somebody does a good job, tell them. And tell their line manager and tell anybody who will listen. Because focusing on somebody else's happiness is going to improve yours. And also because you would like it if you did a good job and somebody told your line manager. And finally, the big one. I think play, play, find something that makes your heart sing and do it, write a story, get out your Nintendo Switch, other games consoles are available. Go out and play Pokemon, I promise I'm not sponsored by Nintendo do whatever you need to do to bring back that sense of unbridled joy and just do it because there is nothing wrong with being happy there is something wrong with toxic positivity there is something wrong with being happy when situations don't warrant it but there is nothing wrong with saying do you know what i want my base state as much as possible as much as my own mental health will allow me to be happy. Because that's what life is for. And that's the end of our show today. I do hope you have enjoyed it. Um, I certainly have. I find it fascinating to to think about happiness over the past week and to really be focused on it. If you do choose to focus on your own happiness, make a little project out of it over the next few days, weeks, months, then let me know. Interact with me on Twitter. Let me know how it's going. Um, There is no show next week because I am at university. I've got a Uh, weekend of lectures. So I will be back with you the week after next and I am very much looking forward to it. So as always, thank you for joining in. I am very grateful, you know, talking about gratitude, I am very grateful to all of you who choose to listen to my my ramblings every single week and I'm very happy that I get to be here with you. Thank you very much and goodbye.